The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. John. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The Gospel of the Lord. Oh Lord, you took water and you, and you turned it into wine. And tonight we ask that you'll take human words and by the power of your Spirit, and make them your very own. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, well, hello, and, and a happy a second Sunday of Epiphany to everybody. I, I should tell you, tonight, tonight's sermon's a little lean, I'm afraid. Um, not, not a lot of cute stories. I tried, but I just didn't come up with any. So we're going to have to kind of buckle our seatbelts a little bit. This text offers a lot, and I think demands a lot from us as readers, especially those of us who are overly familiar with a text like this one, John chapter 2. Um, can I say something quickly about Epiphany before we get going? You know, Epiphany is a, a festival of the church that goes a long way back. I mean, I think the first attestation of Epiphany is somewhere in the 4th century, but it presumably was taking place even before then. And the festival of Epiphany that we're in now is generally related to the celebration of Jesus' incarnation, His becoming flesh for the sake of the salvation of the world. So Epiphany means to cause something to come to light or to illuminate something. And the illumination in this season is about Jesus uh, Christ as God in the flesh. So for a very long time, this festival of Epiphany that we're in now was linked with certain events in Jesus' life, namely His birth, the visit of the Magi. Any of you write with chalk over your doors about the Magi? Anybody do that in your family? Now the Magi come. Jesus' baptism uh, in the Jordan River. That was the reading last week. Uh, and the miracle at the wedding at Cana in Galilee, where Jesus turns the water into wine, our reading tonight, this as well is a unique event of Epiphany telling us something about the pulling back of the veil so that we can see that this person is someone special. This is God in, in human flesh. So, the story at the wedding at Cana, it has a long history in the church's lectionary cycle as most appropriate to this particular season in our shared a common life. At the wedding of Cana, where we are tonight, now the curtain is being pulled back and the glory of the Lord is being revealed. Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son, he has the creative power of God himself. Jesus of Nazareth, that guy 
who fixed our family bench last year has now the creative ability to change the elements of water into the elementary properties of wine. And not just any wine, but apparently like a Chateauneuf du Pop or something like that. Pretty good wine. So as the word spreads, we can only imagine the talk on the streets. Did you hear what the carpenter's son did? He did what? Now, another uh, a few words of introduction. John's Gospel, and I hope you like John's Gospel, it is a roller coaster ride of a gospel. And uh, you like it too, good. And, a lot, and I'm going to be very careful not to go into teacher mode here. Um, but John's Gospel is textured and rich in the sense that John's Gospel will present stories to you in narrative form, like the one that we have tonight, but will ask you to read the story again and to come at it from another perspective, maybe more symbolic or more figurative. For example, you have this night encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus. And there's an exchange between Jesus and Nicodemus about the necessity of water for being born again. Now, that has been long read in the life of the church, and rightly so, I think, as an indication about baptism, and probably right. John 17 is the last prayer that we have Jesus praying, the high priestly prayer, right before he goes to the cross in John chapter 18. And I think John 17 gives us an account of what Jesus really did in a particular moment of time in Israel's past, in, in, in the first century world. But I also think John 17 is letting you know something about the character of Jesus now in his life of intercession on your account. Do you want to know what Jesus' prayer life looks like to the Father, by the Spirit, right now in his own divine life? Take a read at John 17. Right. In John 2, our text tonight, I don't think is any exception. It invites us into a second reading, a kind of textured reading, and we'll go there at the end of the sermon. But on the surface, let's do the first reading first. On the surface, the event is straightforward. And pound for pound, this story is a good one. Jesus has called his disciples in the previous chapter. A wedding is taking place in Cana which happens to be the birthplace of Nathaniel, who had just gotten called at the end of John chapter 1. And now they're on their way to Cana, about nine miles north of Nazareth. Jesus and his disciples have some sort of connection to this family. They've been invited to the wedding feast. And as you might know, wedding feasts during this time could go as long as a week. And the responsibility for the wedding feast was on the shoulders of the groom and his family. Well, you know what happens. The, the party goes on. Wine gets imbibed, and then all of a sudden, the wine is gone. Now, why does Mary, in the story, take the responsibility on her own shoulders? We don't really know. Perhaps she had a special connection to the family, or perhaps, as some suggest, she had some kind of responsibility in overseeing the, the party itself. We, we don't know. But we do know that they ran out of wine, and in the running out of wine, that had huge social ramifications in this world. My mother, who happens to be here tonight, and her family are from the Middle East. I come from a Mediterranean family. That's in my background. It's in my kith and kin. Though they don't use that term in the Middle East, by the way. Um, and I know what it's like to be around family of Middle Eastern descent who care deeply about not running out of food or running out of, well, whatever's being served. So here Mary comes to the rescue, leading to a scene that, frankly, probably makes all mothers in the room a little bit uncomfortable. She tells Jesus, we're out of wine. 
And then Jesus rebukes her. Mildly, but He rebukes His own mother. What is this problem to you and to me, woman? And that sounds weird when you read that in the English, and it should. It's not really, it's a kind of, it'd be like saying ma'am in an almost distant way. It's not a fun scene, actually. And he says to her, what is this to you and to me? Because my hour, it hasn't come yet. What is Jesus' hour in John's Gospel? Jesus' hour in John's Gospel is the cross and His exaltation after the cross. It's not time yet, Mom. It's not time yet, woman. And then um, Jesus, uh, Mary steps back, mildly rebuked. And there's a scene and a sense of expectation that now begins to build on this narrative. Because Mary steps back, unperturbed, and she tells the servants the great words of any faithful follower of Jesus. Whatever He tells you to do, you need to do it. Mary is exemplary here, by the way, in her depiction of a life of faith at this moment. I'm going to leave it in Jesus' hand and not make any presumptions on the basis of my familial connection. By the way, that's a hard thing to do, to leave things in Jesus' hands. But we won't chase that. And now Jesus acts. He sees these stone jars. The jars that probably would have been present at any feast like this. Uh, necessary ritual washings, whether for hands or for utensils. But these stone jars would have been there. And they're large jars. Did you read hear the text tonight? Capable of holding 20 to 30 gallons of water apiece. So let's do our quick math. Never been good at this. Uh, six jars, 20 to 30 gallons. That's about 120 to 180 gallons of water. I'm preparing for my SAT. Now we'll come back to the significance of this in a moment. But needless to say... That's a lot of water. And that's a lot of wine. Jesus tells the servants to fill the water jars up to the brim. Now, there's some controversy here with this text. Um, most readers, all of us, I think, naturally just reading this in its English form, and rightly so, would understand that the water that's put into the jars is the water that is then turned into wine. Um, other think that that might not be the case because of the way in which the language is constructed. It might actually be once the water jars are filled, then they draw the water out of the well and they take that water to the master of the feast and let him taste the water from the well, not the water from the jars, indicating that those jars need to be set aside for something new that's coming from the well. Well, either way, water is now wine. And after drawing the water... They take it to the master of the feast, and here's where the text gets fun and epiphany-like. The master of the banquet, maybe the bridegroom's father, um, he's got a good nose for wine. The stuff that he's drinking right now, it's first rate. No two-buck chuck from Trader Joe's, right? This is quality wine with a nose that's complex and with flavors that compound on each other, such that fruit and Earth and minerals and acid all balance with one another in such a way to create an unusual and a special human experience. Wow, that's pretty good wine. And the master understands why this is so surprising. We're several days into this feast. People have been drinking quite a bit already. Now, I grew up in a teetotaling world. Maybe some of you did as well. So this text always caused problems in church, frankly. I remember being told, even growing up from preachers, that 
The bad wine was served later after the good wine because people's palates had become so adjusted to the wine that they really couldn't differentiate good wine from bad wine. Well, that might be true. But if you read this close enough, you realize why people can't tell good wine from bad wine after a few days of drinking. Why? Well, because they've drunk deeply. They're a little bit tipsy. They're inebriated. And when all expected second-rate wine, because we don't really care about the wine anymore, do we? Jesus creates something special. And in doing so, John's Gospel tells us that he's manifesting his glory. What a great story, right? I mean, if there's Friday night, movie night in heaven, and we get to see scenes from the Bible on the big screen, I'll get advanced tickets for this one. It's a good one. And the surface account of the story that we just went through right now, that's fine. It's even sufficient. Why? Because Jesus is beginning his ministry. He's revealing his glory. And this is the first sign to get Jesus and his disciples out of the gate on the way to the cross. Amen. Let's go home. But there's so much more here. So much more. And I wish we could take the time, but I won't. I'm going to say two things just for time's sake. Number one, the Cana miracle here in John chapter 2 takes place on the seventh day of Jesus' public ministry. Now, do you remember how John's Gospel begins? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning. Does that sound familiar to you Bible people out there, right? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This phrase in John chapter 1 invites us into the Gospel to understand that the God who created the world and set out to redeem it, is the self-same God revealed in this person, Jesus of Nazareth. And that kind of blows our hair back. They're one and the same. And after the prologue of John's Gospel, we have the testimony of John the Baptist about the one who will come after him. That's day one. If you had Bibles, I'd show you this. That's day one. And then verse 29 of John 1 says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. And then verse 35 of chapter 1 says, And then the next day, Jesus was standing with two of his disciples. And then it says in verse 43, And the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. The next day, the next day, the next day. So far, we've got four days. Day 1 through day 4. And listen now to how John chapter 2 begins. And on the third day, after three days, there was a wedding. So we've had four days plus three days equals seven days. Now, I know some of this stuff can get goofy, right? I mean, you start hearing people talk about numbers, and if you read the Hebrew backward in Hosea chapter 5, you'll find out that JFK gets killed on day seven. I get that, right? I don't like that either. But this is significant, because the whole context of John's Gospel is setting us up in a context of creation. In the beginning was the Word. And the first sign of Jesus' public ministry takes place on day seven of his public ministry. Now, I would love to sit with this for a while, but I'm just going to say it quickly. Day seven in the Acts of Creation in Genesis chapter one is the day that God inhabits after he created the world. And he inhabits that place. St. Augustine, in his commentary on Genesis, says there's a significance to the fact that every day of creation says an evening and morning were the first day. But when you get to day seven, there's only morning, there's no evening. In fact, Martin Luther, in his commentary on Genesis, says something that's actually rather surprising. Let's pretend Adam and Eve had never fallen. They didn't eat the fruit. 
They told the serpent to take a hike. Luther says, despite that, despite that, even if they would remained unfallen, they would have led, led their lives, they would have led a good life of relationship to the world and to their God, but in time, God would have taken them from the garden into His seventh day. That's, his, that's the goal of creation. The goal of creation is the seventh day of God's perpetual rest. He ceased from His creative activity. And from the standpoint of His seventh day, that's now where He orders creation towards its redemptive end. And what is Jesus doing? On the seventh day of His ministry, on the Sabbath day of His ministry, on the seventh day of this creative, redemptive experience, Jesus is now doing an act of creation. He's turning water into wine. And it kind of blows our hair back. Why? Because Jesus is embodying for us two things. Number one, I am God the Creator. And number two, I am now bringing you into the seventh day of my own perpetual redemptive experience. The rest that's been promised to us is being fulfilled in the personal work of Jesus. The second thing, and there's more. The Messianic banquet that is anticipated in Hosea and Jeremiah and Micah and Zechariah, the Messianic banquet always has wine at the table. Always. It's a feast. And what does this Messiah do here? Who's coming into that messianic age and bringing wine into this moment? What does John's Gospel tell us? Jesus says, I came into the world to give you life, but not just to give you life, to give you what? Abundant life. This is the messianic age that Jesus is bringing to fruition right now, and He's doing so by bringing His own messianic wine. That wine's not really good enough. I'm going to bring my own. And it's not just any wine. It's special wine. It's great wine. It's super abundant wine. More wine than we're going to be able to drink. 180 gallons. That's a lot. Welcome to the Messianic age. Welcome to the age of super abundance. The age of my super abundant grace. I can't get into this too much. But there are seven signs in the Gospel of John. The first sign is this one. The seventh sign is the resurrection of the dead. Here we have the signs linking together with each other to show us that we are in the age of the resurrection of the dead and Jesus has brought His own wine to the party telling us, I'm the Creator and I'm your Redeemer. It's a season of epiphany. It's a season of recognizing that the One who we see changing water into wine is God in the flesh and our Redeemer at the same time. So, we don't have the wine all in its fullest yet. But the Chateauneuf du Pape is coming in its fullness because Jesus already did it in John 2 and He promises that He's going to bring it again. Amen.